Lasso. So we will return to the practice of taking the mind as a path, attending very closely to the space of the mind. And I proposed a kind of a hypothesis recently that uh, the word I was looking for is quantum foam. It's a very technical term in quantum mechanics, but it's got a nice poetic feel. And that is, when you're attending to the space of the mind, you have a sense of it just a sheer emptiness, like just nothing, and then something happens in it, or in that vacuity, is there something happening uh, that's not this appearance versus that appearance? More like, again, speaking poetically, nothing strict about this, but more like background radiation, just kind of like a fizz, a foaming, a, a shimmering in the space itself, which, again, has that mood of dynamism, mood of pregnancy, mood of potential, ready to display as an appearance, a thought, and so forth, or as a dream, for that matter. So, such for the space of the mind. But as we attend more and more closely, and we're spending more hours, perhaps, taking the mind as the path, this is clearly challenging us to attend more closely, which means to arouse vividness, acuity, high resolution, uh, and just overall the fact that we never know what's coming up, that is from moment to moment. This is the most unpredictable of all the shamatha methods and from moment to moment in terms of you don't know what's coming up next. If you just breathe in, you know what's coming next. <laughs> when you breathe out, you hope you know what's coming next. But here, you just have no idea what's coming out next, unless you're controlling, in which case, if you're doing that, then you're not doing the practice, right? And so the sheer fact of the novelty, the ongoing novelty, the ongoing freshness, the ongoing unprecedentedness of what's coming up, because you never really have repeat performances, just a lot of similarities, perhaps, that braces the mind, it arouses the mind, which, so, such that for some people, if they're more of the vata nature of a wind constitution within wind, bile, and phlegm, if they try doing this while, while they're seeking to fall asleep, they won't fall asleep. Because they have the arousal, arousal, they can stay awake like hours like that. Because it just keeps them above the threshold of melting into, and so totally relaxed, and they fall asleep. So that's just the nature of this practice, that it is one that kind of is bracing. And it's fine. It's fine to attend more closely with higher definition, higher resolution, see the subtleties, see not only thoughts, but thoughts that are about to emerge and never quite break the surface, and then subside back into it. Tsongkhapa spoke of that, and it certainly is true. But here's the point, and it's a, it's a familiar refrain, and I'm going to say it again. The, the, the higher your pyramid, you better have the, the, the stronger the base. And that is, it's fine to have increasing clarity, clarity, but if you're not simultaneously, not just, oh, I'm relaxed, I'm relaxed, but actually deepening the sense of relaxation, right, then you will find yourself top-heavy. And then you'll start getting a little of a buzz, a bit of a tension, a bit of hyper, a bit of feeling wired. And then, having, and then you may have pressure heart starting to build up in the head or in the face. You have more insomnia, feeling a bit restless, ill at ease, uh, and so forth. And that's just all a very clear indication. You're top-heavy. You have the upside-down pyramid. It's going to fall over. So what I'd like to do for this session, without much further ado, is go back, and it will be a silent session, so it will be at your leisure for you to determine how you want to partition the, uh, the session. But I would say more or less the first half. It can be more or less, more or less the first half. Um, go back to 
settling the body in its natural state. Back to the same type of awareness, but instead of attending to the space of the mind, attending to the space of the body and whatever arises. But you notice my, my words there. I'm using very parallel, exactly parallel words, attending to the space of the body and whatever arises. It's a wide range of sensations, but also feelings. My, my ankle right now itches. I don't really like itches. I want to scratch it. Oh, good, now it's gone. So that was within the somatic space, right? And so we have a simple question, really, really simple. We've, I've asked the, asked the question, and I think you've engaged with the question in your own experience, of whether you can, in fact, attend to the space of the mind, whether there's something to attend to that has qualities. And I think you have some sense, of, you know, from your own experience, what the answer to that is. Well, we can ask the same question. Can you attend to, can you perceive, and not only imagine or project, the space of the body? The space. The sensations arising, in it, it was arising within it, of course. Feelings arising in it, no question. But we say it, in it, in it. Is that just a way of speaking? Or is it actually a space that you can identify? And then, of course, you can ask very simply. This is not an analysis, but just a close exam- examination. Okay, there's a space of the body. There certainly is a domain of experience in which somatic experiences, sensations are arising. That's kind of undeniable. But we can ask a simple question. Does it have borders? Your body does, sure. I mean, there it is. I mean, that's, that's straightforward. Skin, that's pretty, pretty it's defining of the borders of the body. But that's as we see it visually, right? And as we measure it physically and so forth. We're not questioning that, it's true. But from this first person, I mean, what's it like to be embodied? I mean, it's, we've gotten so used to it, but it's so remarkable. I have no idea what it's like to be a glass of water. I don't think there, I think there isn't anything such as what it's like to be a glass of water because there's no consciousness in it. But I can be conscious of the glass water from, from outside, and, and scientists are looking at the, the appearances, the objective appearances, of all types of physical phenomena, including the brain. But it's all appearances. It's all from the outside. Even if you start shaving the brain away, it's, just a, it's, it's all outside, all the way down to a neuron, all, all the way down to an elementary particle. It's all outside. Whereas here, this remarkable thing, there's a, a book composed by three friends of mine called The Embodied Mind. Mind is Francisco Varela, Eleanor Raj, and Elvin Thompson. Uh, it's a good book. And they made a very good point with the title, and that is, Mind is Embodied. We are viewing the body from the inside out. And it's the only physical, physical entity in the universe that we can do that. We can't do that with another person's body. We can, we can touch, we can see, and so forth, but not from the inside. This is the only physical entity in the universe that we can view it from the inside. So what's the space of the body? Does it have contours? Does it have a color? Is it dark? Is it black? Is it transparent? Does the space have a shape? We're not questioning the body does. Of course it does. But the space, does that have a shape? So check that out. And final point before we start, stillness and motion, stillness and movement. You've heard it time and time again. Well, it's not only the stillness of your awareness attending to the fluctuations, the sensations arising and passing, coming and going in the space of the body, and then the appearances coming and going in the space of the mind, but also itself, relatively speaking, is it not true that the space itself is still? The space of the mind, even if it's fizzing, even if it's foaming, even if it's effervescent and shimmering, is not moving here or there, and that 
it's quite homogenous, isn't it? I mean, like background radiation is quite, if we're really dealing with the analog of the energy of empty space that I spoke about this morning, which is a physical fact, if we're talking about something like that, then it doesn't go in ebb and flow. It doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't have spikes. It's like background radiation. It's not the same, by the way. But it's like that. And so that is a, rel- a relative stillness. It's a relative stillness. But then, of course, the thought of something comes up. An image of something comes up, and then it vanishes. Stillness within the space. The space is stillness, relatively speaking. The events taking place within it are motion. Similarly, the stillness of the space of your body and the the motion of sensations and feelings arising in that space. Stillness and motion. We see here something right immediately experiential, phenomenological. There's no belief or mysticism here of any sort, nothing transcendent. But then if we, if we look further down the road to taking dhanata as the path, because that's the next one. You take the mind as the path, and then you take dhanata, ultimate reality as the path. Right? You do that, well now you're right in the domain of the Heart Sutra, perfection of wisdom, majamaka. Oh, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Apart from form there is no emptiness, apart from emptiness there is no form. Stillness in motion. Emptiness is still. Emptiness doesn't move, it doesn't shift, it doesn't do stuff. Form does. But the form is nothing other than empty. The the form itself is empty. Emptiness itself is taking on form. Stillness and motion. And then we go to the deepest level. Rikpa is beyond coming and going. Primordially, timelessly, timelessly beyond coming and going, rising and passing, beyond all conceptual frameworks. Stillness, primordial stillness, beyond time stillness. That's really still. And yet, constantly manifesting in all manner of displays. Stillness and motion. Big topic. All the way through. All the way through. So, good. Let's practice for 24 minutes. See what happens. So let's plunge right back into this swiftly running current of Kamachamit's presentation of Shabbat. So we see a, very, a theme that he's very, very strongly emphasizing here is that the role of shamatha is to enable you to transcend the configurations, the, the constructs of thought it's kind of like escape velocity. If you, if you send a rocket up with too little, too little energy, it will just and fall back, of course. But if you send it with enough, then it, uh, then it will escape the gravitational field of the Earth and go into deep space. So we have the gravitational field, so to speak, of our concepts, our theoretical frameworks, our language, and so forth. And we can think very deep thoughts. That's like sending a rocket very high up and then it falls back to the ground again. Because it's still thoughts. It's still anthropocentric because we're still thinking in our language. You know, whereas the shamatha is the technology to enable you to get enough thrust to be able to cut through all conceptual designations and penetrate to a domain of reality that's entirely beyond the scope of the intellect. And that's what you do with vipassana. But you won't be able to sustain it without shamatha. And so here we are in the Ashta Sahasrika Prashtampanamita, the, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 8,000 verses. 
It is said, by cultivating the perfection of wisdom, you do not abide in form, nor in feeling, nor in discernment, nor in mental formations, nor in consciousness. So he just listed the five skandhas. You're transcending these, clearly. In the synthesis of our own view, it is said, by means of mudras, mandalas, mantras, visualization, and recitation. So he pretty much just summed up state regeneration practice. Even with many tens of millions of eons, there is never any attainment of cities. One who abides in reality, this is reality as in dharmata, upon abandoning all conceptualization, one who abides in emptiness, ultimate reality, upon abandoning all conceptualization, achieves success in this life and reaches supreme enlightenment. Uh, this needs a little bit of commentary, and that is, if you have, if you have achieved shamatha, and you have insight into emptiness, and you are motivated by bodhicitta, and you engage in state regeneration practice. Oh, there's all kinds of cities that arise. Many, many, many. Without having to go through all the, the Olympic gymnastics of the, all the casinas and the, and the forum realm and formless realm. But if you don't have shamatha, they're not going to arise. If you don't have realization of emptiness, they won't arise. And so you must abandon all conceptualization and abide in emptiness. You abide in emptiness with vipassana, but you can't do that unless you've abandoned conceptualization. And that's with shamatha. So it always comes back to what Tsongkhapa so rightly and universally claimed, the core of all Buddhist meditation is shamatha vipassana. Everything else is derivative or around about that, but that's right to the core. The Sambhuta Mahatantra said, it is, in this it is said, upon leaving the abode of conceptualization, and I don't think my translation is very good, I wish I could see the Tibetan, but um, I think it probably should be better even if, so upon leaving the boat of conceptualization, okay, escape velocity, you've transcended the noise, you've gone down to pure signal, no noise, even if a perceptive person does not realize this. So whether you know or not, according to the words of the mind vajra, so Buddha, for this person there is no doubt about cities. So cities arise by transcending this whole domain of conceptualization. With conceptualization, you go to the hell realms. So you better stop thinking quickly. That sounds quite daunting. <laughs> and you circle around in the ocean of the six types of existence. If you are liberated from conceptualization, you go to the unstained sphere of peace. That is, of course, nirvana. So cut the web of conceptualization. And, what, and we all, I think we all have a sense of what he's saying here. That is, there are virtuous concepts or unvirtuous concepts. But this is, again, compulsive or obsessive ideation. And it's exactly what Shantideva says. One who lives, one whose mind is distracted lives between the fangs of mental afflictions. Your immune system is shot. So if something really negative comes up, it's going to consume you. So I think that's very simply what is stated there. The Varochana, Abhisambodhi, in this it is says, conceptualization or obsessive, obsessive thoughts turn into suffering. I think that's an empirical, empirically evidenced truth. For as long as they are not eliminated, there is no Buddhahood in this world, and there is nothing called omniscience. So there's no path, as long as your mind... I mean, it's kind of just... it should be obvious. If your mind's still prone to obsessive th- thinking and thoughts, and so it's obsessive-compulsive, to think of setting out on this royal highway of the Bodhisattva path is crazy. You're bringing a car that's already totaled, you might want to fix your car first. So in the Vajramala Tantra, it is said, in the exhaustion of all obsessive thinking or thoughts, great bliss perfectly arises. 
in the Vajrapanya Bhisheka Mahatantra, it is said in, the, in primordial consciousness, free of conceptualization, the jinas, that is the conquerors, the victorious ones, the Buddhas, of the past have become Buddhas. That's how they did it. By way of primordial consciousness that transcends all conceptualization, in that freedom from conceptualization, it is said that you gain success in Tantra, and this is literally secret mantra or secret mantrayana. The pure results of that naturally transform into clear light. Okay, clear light being primordial consciousness. And for one who dwells in, for one who dwells in conceptualization, cities do not arise. So by eliminating conceptualization, imagine the forms of Tantra. Eliminate them and then move into this whole realm of pure vision. Pure vision, the forms of Tantra, pure vision of Tantra, as in, again, Samak, secret Mantrayana. In the Adi Nanottara Tantra, it is said, in order to achieve the Jnanakaya, Jnana means primordial consciousness, Kaya is embodiment, so in order to achieve the embodiment of primordial consciousness, one can say this is Dharmakaya, the Tathagata recommended meditation that eliminates all compulsive I checked the Tibetan there, it's right on the bottom of the page, and it's better than mental fabrication. This is the compulsive thinking, compulsive thoughts or compulsive ideation. So you must go beyond that, must transcend that. And again, all of this is taking place in the shamatha section, so we know what he's getting at. This is the tool you need to deal with this problem, and then you can get the other problems of reification and so forth. Well, that's what the next chapter is for, about vipassana. The vairochana abhisambodhi, here in in, in this it is said, those who long for the state of omniscience should continually strive for the total elimination of all forms of conceptualization. So just to pause for a moment, um, the theme of transcendence. I mean, we have this fundamental drive to find happiness to be free of suffering, but I think it's quite well known, and just quite well known that many people very explicitly, and perhaps all people implicitly, have a yearning for transcendence. You know, and, and they'll join political parties, they'll join ISIS, they'll join the Republican Party, they'll become, they'll become Buddhists. You know, a sense of belonging to something larger than yourself, transcending the confines of yourself. Uh, people becoming, taking, you know, monastic ordination, becoming yogis, it, becoming, you know, there's just so many ways of trying to get beyond your skin, you know. And so in science, the fundamental technique since Galileo to see beyond the veil of these anthropocentric appearances that are arising in dependence upon our human sense faculties. So we look around and we, see, we, we, think, we think we're seeing Tuscany. We're seeing an anthropocentric view of Tuscany. Because if you're a rabbit, a bumblebee, and so forth and so on, you're not going to see this. You're going to be living in a world that has some, something in common with ours. But you'll be experiencing something else, right? And so Galileo, profoundly religious person, a natural-born contemplative, um, as he wanted to know the mind of the Creator by way of the creation, he looked outwards, again, the, the, motion, the motion of transcendence. He wanted to transcend this bubble of appearances arising to his mind, and so he brought greater sophistication to those appearances with his telescope and with his other instruments of technology, still appearances. But he wasn't after just more appearances. Oh, look, I can see dots moving around the big dot of of Jupiter. He would use that as a launching pad of mathematics, the language of God, and then be able to infer, this was his fundamental belief, and it's a very reasonable belief, that using mathematics, which is not a human language, 
And based upon very sophisticated measurements of the appearances, he could then leap out of, inferentially, with the intellect, with thought, leap beyond the anthropocentric and think the thoughts of God. I think, I think Einstein used the same terminology, to think the thoughts of God. What was God thinking when God created the universe? And scientists will say, nature speaks in only one language, mathematics, Christian, Christian scientists, scientists who are Christians, may, I'm sure they've said for centuries, God thinks in the language of mathematics. And so that's one form of transcendence to look outwards and to slip into a rarefied mode of conceptualization of pure, kind of pure mathematical thought. And you can infer things that, that are true beyond the sensory domain of human being, but I don't sense that you can transcend the farm realm. I think they're, I think they're accessing by way of intellect the patterns, the regularities, the mathematical principles and laws of the forum realm, which are then manifesting in this world here. That's my speculation. But as long as you're embedded in thought, as contemplatives in Christianity and Buddhism and so forth have known for centuries, as long as you're embedded in thought, you do not transcend to the ultimate. Right? And so here is another... So there's one way to achieve perfect objectivity, is to transcend subjective the taboo of subjectivity, one of my favorite books that I've written, to transcend that by means of pure thought, which is then mathematics, and intellectually, again, using what Aristotle thought was man's highest faculty, and that is reason, to then transcend our anthropocentricity and see reality as it is, as God sees it. There's one strategy, and it's been extremely productive, as we all know, for hedonic well-being, for technology and so forth, um, but the contemplative approach here is so clearly articulated. There's another way to transcend. It's not by looking outwards with rarefied abstract thought. It's by transcending thought entirely. And in transcending thought entirely and transcending subjective appearances of the five senses entirely, then you transcend the anthropocentric bubble and you, you tap into a reality that is ultimate. So it's a different strategy. They're complementary. But they certainly give rise. One is a, a, a magnificent source for hedonia and gives us basically nothing at all for eudaimonia. And the other one is we look at the, you know, the primitive nature of Tibetan culture with you know, prayer wheels being their highest technology. Gave them, frankly, nothing. I mean, Buddhism, for those 1,200 years, what did Buddhism really give hedonically that they didn't have before? I think it's prayer wheels. I don't think it was much else at all. But the, but the level of contentment in the country was quite extraordinary. But immensely, I mean inconceivably enriched, not only the great yogis, but the whole society, eudaimonically. So there's a trade-off there. On we go. So in the Vajra Sheka, Sheka Rama, oh, Vaj, uh, Vajra Shekara Mahaguya Yoga Tantra, aha, yeah, the, the, Point to the, the peak of the Vajra, the Vajra point, Tantra. It is said, evil spirits do not exist at all once the mind itself is purified. Your own mind is called Mara, and evil spirits are also your own mind. Clear out all ideation, for evil spirits arise from ideation. Hold fast to the mind, which is difficult to subdue and eliminate desires. That's a theme that Dujum Lingba, Padmasambhava, really, really emphasizes in the Vajra essence. And that is, they have this tremendous menagerie of all kinds of different spirits in Tibetan worldview. 
And just one by one, he said, and this is a projection of this mental affliction, and this is a projection of this one, and this one, this one, and goes through all of them, and cutting them all off at the knees as having any objective inherent existence, and saying, subdue this one, and you subdue them all. Nagarjuna states, the Buddhists have said that the characteristic of the cessation of the flow of wholesome and unwholesome ideation is emptiness. Of course, you can't be comatose, that doesn't work. You'd, you'd be free of all thoughts if you're just comatose. But this is where you're transcending ideation with insight. So the whole issue of transcending ideation, again, that's the shamatha element penetrating through to emptiness. That's the vipassana element. Shantideva states, due to the isolation of the body, speech, and mind, distraction does not occur. As we withdraw body, speech, and mind from busyness, from entertainment, from distraction, and so forth, then... Distraction does not occur, therefore the world is to be renounced and ideation is to be thoroughly rejected. In the Naimitra Nairmanika, what is it in Tibetan? Nanjujupa, uh, entering yoga. Entering yoga. Uh, it is said the mind settles the mind settles in meditative equipoise with the continual elimination of the the mind settled in it. Yeah, settled in. The mind settles in meditative equipoise with the continual elimination of the proliferation of ideation called samsara. That's fine. Okay? So there, same theme. But he's saying it so many times, I think he really means it. And he's drawing from so many sources. Saraha, the great, the great Mahamudra master, Tilopa's teacher, and Tilopa was Naropa's teacher, and Naropa was Marpa's teacher, and Marpa was Milarepa's teacher, and he was Gampopa's teacher, and then right on through the Karmapas. Sara states, Sarha states, often Mahamudra is, is presented as if it has nothing to do with shamatha. Like, oh, we're beyond that, you know? Well, not according to Saraha. Shamatha depends upon its cause, ethical discipline. Its nature is isolation from mental afflictions and ideation. Its cooperative condition is reliance upon special, sustained attention, the benefit is that gross mental afflictions and suffering are suppressed. Or subdued might be better. Gross mental afflictions and suffering are subdued. You want that as your new base camp. If you're still drowning in gross mental afflictions and suffering, Vipassana, I mean authentic Vipassana, really difficult. You'll get, you'll get mugged. You, you'll be wanting to you know, set out on the great voyage of Vipassana and you'll just be mugged. You have these street gangs just beating you up every step of the way. And it's your course mental afflictions and just course of di- disappointment, depression, anxiety, and blah, blah, blah. You can't bring an ordinary mind to Vipassana and expect great success. So the notion of skipping it is just, I don't know, it's a cheap trick. It's a shortcut that just doesn't go anywhere in the long term. And then people doing that for a year or two and then thinking they've, they've achieved stream entry. I feel sorry for them. Because now they won't actually ever find stream entry. As long as they hold on that notion, oh, I've achieved stream entry, their chances of achieving stream entry are zero. Because they've deluded themselves into thinking they've already done it. Okay? It happens a lot. So now this has been a presentation of cultivating shamatha by itself. So it's possible in principle, and this is widely rec- recognized, for the very gifted, just as they're extraordinarily gifted mathematicians and musicians and artists and so forth. I mean, unbelievable, almost inconceivable brilliance, like a Michelangelo, a Da Vinci, a Mozart, an Einstein and so forth, that so far transcend the normal that it's hard to imagine how one can be that brilliant, right? Well, there are people also brilliant in Dharma. Mingyur Doji, a disciple, he was one of those incredible prodigies, you know. And so for such individuals, the extraordinary ones, 
they may right from the beginning be introduced to, let's say, emptiness, teachings and emptiness, middle way view. And they can go right into it and they can simultaneously cultivate shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha focused on emptiness and achieve shamatha by way of empty, by, by way of vipassana. So they achieve the chumas simultaneously. It's not impossible. It's rare, but it's not impossible. Right? Others may go right to, if they have, a, have some insight into emptiness, they may go right in and achieve shamatha by way of stage regeneration. Others, the extraordinarily gifted, may receive pointing out instructions on rikpa, realize rikpa, and they just get, they just get shamatha by the by. It's just swept in. You know? So it's important to see just how, what the enormous range. I think it's much greater, in fact, that maybe Mozart maybe is as good as it gets for music in terms of a sheer prodigy. I don't know if there was a greater one. And we find people like that in mathematics and, and so forth. But, okay, maybe that's as good as it gets, that we can kind of imagine. Okay, but when it comes to spiritual prodigies, I think the spectrum is much more than we can imagine. And outward we see just a little boy or a little girl. Gender. I would say this, this is my very strong speculation, the more that society itself becomes gender neutral, really treats women with, with the respect that, that is due to them, and has always been due to them, as being absolute partners in every meaningful way, insofar as societies start giving real fair and equal treatment to women and show the equal respect, then we'll get more and more female tukus. And insofar as screwed up societies just bear this burden of thinking, oh, the men have to be on top, men have to be on top, then the tukus will say, if that's the game I want to play, okay, I'll be a man again. Because that, that's the only way to give me any respect. You wouldn't even give me an education. So I'm not going to be born into bed as a, as a female tuku in the 18th century. You're not going to give me the time of day. You're going to, you're going to give me omani peme hung and tell me go away. You know, the chances of my becoming a great yogini, getting the sufficient training and so forth, pretty slim. Now, Tibetans happily, we have a lot of female geishis, Tibetan geishis, Western geishis, more and more, and yogis, Tenzin Palmo and so forth. So I think we can hope to see more female tukus, prodigies, enlightened beings who come in and say, oh, this is a sane society where there's some parity here. Oh, then sure, why not come into the woman? Nice change. We need more, frankly. That's my very strong conviction. I think we need more female tukus. So in that, we covered that. So so this, this has been a presentation of cultivating shamatha by itself. So you may cultivate it simultaneously with Vipassanas, simultaneously with stage regeneration, simultaneously with texture, if you're brilliant, super brilliant, incredibly, inconceivably brilliant, but for those who are more dull faculties, like me and maybe some other people, then okay, take Shamatha first and then you move on. So this has been a presentation of cultivating Shamatha by itself in which you do your best to keep your mind still without being scattered anywhere. Okay, so there's stability. With the body in the correct posture, place the body and mind in a state of comfort and relaxation. I just love it when they say that. You, know, you find that in, uh, in primarily in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen literature. I haven't found it so much elsewhere. But in the 21st century, we, we all need to hear this, whether you're Tibetan, Buddhist, American, whatever. If the mind becomes scattered, establish it in stillness without letting it become diffused. Maintaining the mind in stillness, having calmed the scattering of ideation, is shamatha. And now he goes into a very interesting discussion, which I will need to unpack a bit. I've given this thought, I've been reflecting upon this, investigating this, doing background research 
for about 25 years. So I have some perspective on this that may be of interest. So flawed, so now there is a minor, really tiny bit of business. Now there is flawed and flawless meditation, just to be in accordance. Either one is fine, but flawed and flawless. So first of all, what's flawed meditation? And I'm going to change. I am, I've, I'm abandoning my own earlier interpretation. So when you see big footnotes, scratch them out. I think they're completely wrong. It was a nice try, but I think they're wrong. 63 and 64, I think they're wrong. And those are my footnotes, so I'm not criticizing somebody else. It's that stupid Alan that used to exist, but he no longer, he, he died. He's very happy. <laughs> I presided over his, his funeral. Schmuck. <laughs> due, to, due to the minds entering shamatha. So here's a flawed, here's flawed shamatha. And I have a new interpretation. Maybe later I'll call myself today a schmuck, but for now I'm standing by what I say. Due to the minds entering shamatha, to bear in mind shamatha is not just one state, it's, you know, it's a process. It's a process. You're practicing shamatha, you're entering into your best approximation of shamatha the first time you practice. And then they say, and you've heard me, many of you heard me say this many times, machine I'm accomplishing shamatha. I'm on stage one. You know, and that's how you accomplish shamatha. You accomplish shamatha, and you, then after a while, I'm accomplishing shamatha, and I'm on stage two. But it's not, I hope I will one day, but I haven't yet, but I hope so. No, that just gets you ho- caught up in hope and fear. So, due to the mind's entering shamatha, entering shamatha, practice. Even if you're called, you do not hear, as if you had fallen deep asleep, but you're not nodding off. At that time, the eyes do not see anything. Now, here's the giveaway point, to my mind. This is the real big one. With an unclear mind, unclear, everything hinges on unclear. With an unclear mind, you do not recall or think anything. Even though you are in such a state for a long time, you're unaware of the passage of time. When you are aroused from that samadhi, it's like waking up from sleep or being restored to consciousness after fainting, and you think, now it's happened to me. Or, what, 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 you know, like that. And so, I was far too generous, I think. I'm really quite strong in my rejection of the earlier interpretation. That was very charitable. I think it was way too charitable. I think it was wrong. Because I, I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm going to tell you what I think it is now. Time is short. I think what he's talking about, and I think there was a strong intimation of this in his Shamatha chapter in Spacious Path to Freedom, that along the nine stages... The first real turning point, or crossing a watershed, like a continental divide, is achieving the the fourth and then seeking to achieve the fifth. That's the first big challenge. And it's a challenge that a lot of people don't rise to meet, do not succeed. And it will naturally come if you have not received precise, accurate uh, instructions on the nine stages. A lot of people don't. They have no idea what they are. They just, are we there yet? I guess we're there. A lot of people thinking they're going to achieve the first jhana and so forth. They're just clueless. Then that's just a problem. They're just clueless. They just don't know. They plucked out some sound bites from the Pali Canon. That oh yeah, and, and then they then they think you know I've achieved it. Well, they're almost certainly wrong. So what I'm my interpretation here is this, and I'm I will I'd be willing to defend this one. He's referring to the fourth mental state out of nine preceding access to the first jhana. And at this point, you might recall that one of the the, the problems or challenges is complacency. That until then, you are subject to coarse excitation. 
which you know is irritating, annoying, frustrating. Oh my, I lost my mind again. Yeah. And then you get, and then you stabilize in stage four. This means you can kind of slip into flow, like an hour. And if you get really relaxed, maybe two hours. If your body doesn't pain you, pain you maybe longer. And you just get into that flow, and the mind's really quiet, really, really quiet, and it's calm, and it's soothing, and it's peaceful. And you don't need introspection. Who needs introspection when it's so peaceful? And you are feeling drowsy. You are feeling drowsy. You're going into trance. And Kamachana says, if you continue that, you'll be born as a dog. And what's happening here is you're not exercising introspection. Introspection is an expression of intelligence, and you're not using it. And you're not using any other kind of intelligence either. You're not investigating anything. You're just floating down the stream of coarse laxity. That's what he says, unclear. If, you're, if you've succumbed to coarse laxity, your mind is not clear. It's not a matter of medium laxity or subtle laxity, and it's certainly not a matter of the third out of four types of, mi- of, of, of mi- mindfulness that uh, Dujum Lingba speaks of, which is where you've almost achieved shamatha. I'm, I'm sure this is wrong. The early interpretation or footnote is wrong. This is way down the mountain. Stage four, where the mind is very calm, it's very quiet, but you haven't honed, you're not even utilizing your perspective skills. So you're basically for hour after hour, even maybe day, week, month after month, you're not exercising your intelligence in any way. You're just resting in this nice warm jacuzzi of an inner serenity and peacefulness, and you're slipping into and getting mired down in stupor. And you can think that's shamatha. And you say, but shamatha means tranquility, and I am really tranquil. Yeah, you're also getting really stupid. you know. So he's giving a big warning. This is flawed. This is not a natural step on the way. The, the third type of mindfulness, remember? Absence of mindfulness, just before self-illuminating mindfulness. That's not a flaw. That's a natural step in the progression, very, very far up, like stage nine. You're almost there. That's not a flaw. That's not a flaw at all. It's just a phase you, you, you briefly move through, and then you achieve shamatha. I don't think this is anywhere near shamatha. I think it's stupid stage four, where you've not risen to the challenge of recognizing coarse laxity and overcoming it. I'm very strong in that interpretation now. So if I'm wrong, just like I said before, if I'm wrong, I'm flamboyantly wrong wildly, crazy-ass, totally wrong. But you'll have to show me. Okay? Until then, I stand where I stand. I sit where I sit. A person who experiences such thing is confused about shamatha. Well, that's good. And that's not what that says down in, in, in footnotes 63 or 64. At first, if such experiences happen momentarily, just once in a while you slip into that. Okay, there's no problem. And it's indication that the meditative state is arising. You've gotten over. You've gotten over coarse excitation. Cool. That's a step on the way. That's good. But for heaven's sake, now is not the time to sit back in your easy chair, and just you know space out. There are also accounts of people knowing such things as the past and future. So having some bit of clairvoyance. People who have never meditated sometimes have premonitions. Well, that's no big deal. It is inappropriate to continue in that thinking. It is meditation. If you cultivate that alone, it acts as a cause for birth as an animal. And it's for the very simple reason, I think actually, you know, it makes really good sense. You are not using your frontal cortex. You're not using your human intelligence. Use it or lose it. Karmically speaking, use it or lose it. 
you don't use it, okay. Then get to, if you're acting like an animal, then get you know you'll get a form that corresponds to how you are. Ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. <laughs> Again, focus. So if you are succumbing to this type of dullness, flat out dullness, or coarse laxity, or spacing out, don't have any sense of track of time. You come out of meditation, you're kind of disoriented. These are not good signs. These are not yum. These are indications you're meditating incorrectly. So what to do? Again, focus the mind on the center of the heart and remain without bringing any thoughts to mind. So you're going right into the nucleus there. By so doing, the mind will remain without the occurrence of memories or thoughts. Thus, due to the absence of memories and thoughts, the eight collections of outer consciousness are unclear. You've so withdrawn the mind inwards that you know, the, sen- the, five, five, the five physical senses and so on are unclear. Although there are no other memories or thoughts in the mind, there is the mere discernment of the mind's remaining single-pointedly. There is no observation of the nature of stillness. When you meditate, you'll not sense where the sun has moved. you become oblivious of the surrounding environment. This is said to be analogous to shravaka cessation, that's nirodha, but this is not faultless samadhi. If, it is, if at first it is momentary, this is no problem, but it is inappropriate to meditate continually in that way. So I think all that he's getting up, getting about in this in these various paragraphs here about f- a flawed meditation is he's um, I think he's really addressing that point that people do fall into into bed and fall into it now they've not had sophisticated detailed instructions on the nine stages and what are the distinguishing characteristics of achieving shamatha none of that they've just given a method follow your breath you know and then they do they get to the fourth stage hey I've arrived this is serenity this is tranquility my mind is calm I'm happy and then they you know then they just become stupid. So look out for that. This is a very good warning. The interesting part is next, and I think we can maybe cover this today. It would be good. This is where it gets very interesting. And, but the comments I'll make, and it, it's interesting, frankly, I'll say this um, emphatically. The next discussion and my critique of it, or my response to it, is interesting if and only if one is really interested in path, in reaching a path and proceeding along a path to enlightenment. If all you want to do is just practice dharma, if that's all you want to do, you want to do a bit of this and a bit of that, a bit of stage regeneration, maybe some six yogas, maybe do a three-year retreat, maybe practice donglen, do some lojong, do a lot of pujas, and then die, everything I'm about to say is irrelevant because you're a happy camper already. And a lot of people are very content with that. That's fine. I'm not, but that's okay. But if one is looking for something more than just I'd like to do a bit of this and a bit of that. I'd like to actually set out on a path, which is, after all, it is a fourth noble truth. If one is interested in that, then the comments may be relevant. You will see. Faultless meditation, what's that like? Now then, what is, f- what is flawless meditation? Wherever the mind is directed, it remains still and clear. So there we have clear as opposed to the preceding unclear. That sounds good. Still and clear. Stable and vivid. When you are meditating, the eight collections of consciousness, including the eyes, ears, and so on, do not cease. Rather, each one is clear. Okay? Eight collections of consciousness. That's five sensory consciousness, ordinary mental consciousness, substrate consciousness, and afflictive mentation. Nyuhi, or klishtamanas in, in Sanskrit, and this is something very primal, I think I've referred to it before, a very raw primal sense of I am pre-articulate, pre-conceptual, a coagulation of me. Okay? He's saying all of these do not cease. They're all operative, 
and each one is clear. Now, there is one part here that I don't throw out, and it's just the first sentence in footnote 65, because that's from Gyatrimache, and the rest is my nonsense, okay, that I'm rejecting now. And that is Gyatrimache said, and I think this is impeccable. He says, whereas in flawed meditation, the senses are totally withdrawn. But again, we saw that before. The crucial point here is they're withdrawn because you're so dull. It's like you're halfway asleep. It's unclear. From all the discussion we've had thus, thus far, when you've achieved shamatha, having gone through all of the nine stages, and you're resting in self-illuminating mindfulness, the fourth type of mindfulness, Boy, is there nothing unclear about that. It's radiant. You come into the very nature of luminosity. So it just cannot be described as unclear because it's a very clarity itself, right? And so, or it's in flawed meditation, the senses are totally withdrawn and they're unclear. Stage four, crummy level, not moving beyond it. In flawless meditation, sensory objects do appear to the senses, but they're not apprehended. Okay? But again, that really threw up red flags in my mind. Even that. I think he's right. I mean, I'm not, de- I'm not debating with him. But there's something coming. So here we are in flawless meditation. The body and mind are saturated with joy without irritation. Okay? Bear in mind that happens on many occasions along the path. That's not just waiting for you at the end of the rainbow when you achieve shamatha. And likewise, you know, long before you achieve shamatha, you can have a very still and clear mind. You don't have to. Achieve, it doesn't start at shamatha. So the body and mind are saturated with joy, without irritation. This happens whenever you're meditating. When you are not meditating, effortlessly there's great freedom. This is shamatha alone, and it is the foundation of meditation. So anybody who's following the Kagyu tradition, if they're not following that, I think you're not following the Kagyu tradition. I mean, the shamatha. This is shamatha alone, and it's the foundation of meditation. Uh, I don't know any way to interpret that as literally. And it's stated by Ledap Lingba and Jujum Lingba and Tsongkhapa and Buddha and Shantideva and so forth. How it is overlooked so wildly and broadly. I touch just, it, when all is said and done, I don't fathom it. But we continue. Moreover, by cultivating shamatha, physical and mental bliss arise. Yep. But it happens again along the path and not just at the end. With the arising of great attachment and craving for that, if you cling to it, and regarding, and regarding it as being the highest state, you just kind of really get off on the bliss, you're born in the god of the desire realm. If you cultivate it without attachment or craving, it leads to the path. In that shamatha, by applying an investigative analytical mind... Okay, I'm going to pause there. That's where I'm going to pause. Because Yatra Rinpoche taught this text in 19, I think it was probably 1990 or 91, I can't remember quite which, but it was the first time I translated for him. And I said, this, if this is Shamatha, if this is referring to access of the first jhana, this isn't like anything I've heard thus far. This is contrary to everything I've heard thus far. And so what's happening here? Have I misunderstood or what's going on here? Because this doesn't sound like anything else. Bring out the cell phone. <laughs> so here's about 
20 years of research, summarized very briefly. The real question here, I give you, give away the plot. When he says, shamata, 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 is he referring to access to the first jhana? Is he referring to that? Or is he referring to something less? Okay, the third karmapa, great authority, Ranjun Dorji, one of the most renowned of all of the karmapas, uh, lived from 1284 to 1339. Uh, in his great, great instruction, Tichen, he associates, now here, what he's doing, and I'm going to cite a number of the great patriarchs from the Kaikyut tradition, they're now doing what I love to see done, is they're mapping shamatha and this whole meditative process onto the, onto the path, onto the path, classic path, path of accumulation, and so forth. They're doing this, and they're doing this with enormous authority. So if you are following the Kagyut path, you can assume these people speak, this is the gold standard. Okay? So the third karmapa, Ranjan Dorje, associates the small stage of the yoga of single-pointedness. Okay? There are four yogas in Mahamudra, four yogas, and they cover the whole path. The yoga of single-pointedness, the yoga of karasa, free of conceptual elaboration, it's just the, just the names, single-pointed yoga, yoga free of conceptual elaboration, that's prapancha, the yoga of one taste, that's going very deep, and then the yoga of non-meditation, those four. And then you're finished. Finished. Four yogas, you're finished. Start to finish, okay? But now he's mapping this onto the five, the five paths. Well, we have, our time is short, even our next three and a half weeks is short. But he associates the small stage, of, so we have small, medium, and great stage of the first of those four yogas. Okay? That's, what, that's why I perk up my ears. What's the base of the pyramid? Where do you start? Where's the entry? Small stage of the first yoga. What's that like? I'll learn about the others later, but this is the one that's important. If you don't get there, then you're nowhere. right? So he associates the small stage of the yoga of single-pointedness with the Mahayana path of accumulation. The first of the five paths culminating in perfect enlightenment. Okay. Now you've heard before, there's very good reason to believe that to reach the, to get onto the small stage of the Mahayanapathic accumulation, you must have fully achieved shamatha, the nine stages, the, the full deal, and of course, bodhicitta. So now we go, now we make a leap, about 300 years, to the ninth karmapa, another, they're all renowned, but this is another renowned one, Wanjut Dorje, and in one of the most classic texts in the Kagyut, Mahamudra tradition, it's called Mahamudra, the Ocean of Definitive Meaning. He states, and I quote, how then should one seek to realize shamatha? It is highly praiseworthy for someone to achieve shamatha at the threshold of the first jhana within the form realm, as stated before. Okay, at the threshold of the first jhana, this is access, which I've been talking about all along, right? Access to the first jhana, and then there's a full achievement of, of jhana. This is true in the Theravada tradition, Indian Buddhist tradition. It's true in Gaigyu, It's true in all four schools of, of Buddhism. And there is really a very broad consensus in Tibetan Buddhism that the minimum amount of shamatha needed to reach the path and progress along the path to its culmination uh, with the help of Vajrayana, maybe the six yogas, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and so forth, access to the first jhana. Okay? There's a really wide consensus there. And it goes back to India, back to the sutras, as, as, as we shall see shortly. So he said it's highly praiseworthy for someone to achieve shamatha at the threshold of the first jhana, access to the first jhana, as stated before. So he's already discussed this. Failing that, though, if you're not quite up to it or for whatever reason, you're not going to 
quite get there by means of shamatha alone. Failing that, one would do well to realize single-pointed concentration in the desire realm. Single-pointed concentration. That's the eighth out of nine stages. That's very, very far up along the path. There's only one more, ninth, and then you're at shamatha, right? And so that single-pointed attention, you can read about it in the, the notes that I put on the web. And Claudia, do you, you send it to everybody here? The, the auxiliary material, do you send it to everybody? Or the, post it on the website. Post it on the web, website. That's already on the website. And just as a footnote, uh, sometime within the next 24 hours, there'll be another paper that's um, posted on the website for everybody, podca- podcasters and so forth. And that is a paper I wrote some years ago on space and consciousness relating physics and Dzogchen. And so it's kind of like a big commentary on the morning, this morning's very brief talk. You might find it interesting. People who are interested in space and consciousness, it's all about that. So, but eight, the eighth stage, what's that like? Eighth stage, you're free of subtle excitation and subtle laxity. It's really extremely good samadhi. It takes a wee bit of effort to get in. As soon as you're in, it's effortless. Your senses are still open, although they may fade out now and again, not hearing sounds and so forth, but they're still open. You're in the desire realm, clearly, but it's a classic case where you are so in the zone, so focused on whatever you're attending to, a Buddha image or just resting in awareness of awareness, that these appearances arise and you don't notice them. They are impinging upon your senses. Your senses are clear, they're picking up the data, but your mental awareness is not engaging with them. So they, they arise, but you don't ascertain them. And I give the example of being engrossed in a novel on an airplane. Okay? That's eighth stage. So everything he's stating here Stated earlier, your mind is single-pointed, it's clear, it's luminous, you might even have some extrasensory ability and so forth. Everything he said was exactly accurate pertaining to the eighth out of nine stages. And that is single-pointed. Failing that, one would do well to realize single-pointed concentration in the desire realm. That is a really, really good samadhi. Okay? Now we have another one. Now we go to the 17th century. Very renowned. Selek Natso Rangdru, the lamp of Mahamudra, translated in English. One-pointedness, the first yoga of Mahamudra, has three levels, small, medium, and great. One-pointedness, for the most part, consists of shamatha and the gradual progression through the stages of shamatha with support, with, with characteristic, with sign, without support, and finally to the shamatha that delights the tathagatas. That's the shamatha that's focused on emptiness. Because otherwise it's not even a path. That which delights the tathagatas is you're getting onto the path and you're fusing your shamatha with vipassana with some insight into emptiness. That's when the Buddhas really get excited. Oh, you're going somewhere. You're not just having a nice time spinning around in the pleasant form realm or something. During that process, grasping gradually diminishes. And then Gyatrodhamuchi, my own lama, uh, in his commentary to Naked Awareness, this is much further in the text, he writes, and I quote in his oral commentary, in his oral commentary I wrote down, the first stage of single-pointedness, remember it has three stages, and that's the first yoga, the first stage of single-pointedness occurs with the accomplishment of shamatha, wherein one single-pointedly attends to one's own awareness, which is primordially unceasing and luminous. Okay. So there's some ambi- ambiguity there when he's referring, when Kamachamaramachi refers to dwelling in shamatha, and all eight senses are clear. 
Is it referring to access to the first jhana, which many people call that's achieving samatha, or is he achieving, achieving something in the, near, in the neighborhood, but which is not? It's not in the form realm, not crossed over the threshold to the form realm, it's still in the desire realm. It's really good samadhi. But is, is, is he referring to access to the first jhana, when he says you're still aware of appearances? So for this we go, then go back to the Buddha himself and the Pali Canon. And I quote, this is a wonderful quote, I know of, the Buddha said, I know of no other single process which, thus developed and made much of, is pliable and workable as is this, this citta, this citta, a particular citta, mind. Monks, the citta which is thus developed and made much of, is pliable and workable. Monks, I know of no other single process so quick to change as is this citta. Monks, this citta is brightly shining. But it is defiled by adventitious defilements. Monks, this chitta is brightly this this chitta is brightly shining, but it is free from adventitious defilements. So monks, this chitta this is brightly shining, but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. Monks, this chitta is brightly shining, but it is free from adventitious defilements. So he's referring to a very specific chitta there. It's a bhavanga. He's referring to the Bhavanga. That adventitiously, now and then, is obscured, but then it's not. But the defilements don't enter into its nature. They don't corrupt it. They don't get into its core. They just cover it. Now again, the Buddha states here in the Anguttara Nikaya. This is really interesting. The Anguttara Nikaya implies that loving-kindness, metta, is a quality of the brightly shining citta. Loving-kindness is there and says that it leads a person to meditatively develop one's citta. This bhavanga actually inspires you, draws you, impels you to not be stagnant, not complacent, not just wallow around in samsara. The urge to transcend, the urge to find greater well-being is actually coming from this domain. This passage implies, and, it, and you'll see it, you'll have the notes, a specific uh, passage in the Anguttara Nikaya. This passage implies that the brightly shining citta, which is always there, to be, quote, uncovered, is already endowed with loving-kindness, providing a sound basis for any conscious development of this quality. This, I would say, is proto-Buddha nature. Because it's not Buddha nature. This is not rikpa. It's within samsara. It's conditioned. But it's brightly shining. It's called clear light mind. And it's said to be imbued with loving-kindness, naturally pure, luminous, and obscured. It's a proto, a proto-Buddha nature, I think. So there we have the Pali Canada, but now we go to the greatest of commentators in the Theravada tradition, Bodhagosa, Path of Purification. And I plucked these out yesterday morning at about 3 o'clock in the morning. I got really excited. <laughs> and I've shown you every single citation. So download it. This is really something you want on a computer, unless you just don't care. But the Vasudhi Maga, Path of Purification, download it for free. And it's a marvelous PDF because you can do search in it. That's how I found this quickly. Okay, Just put, put in a word. It comes up so nifty. So here's what Buddhaghosa says, as soon as it, that is the bhavanga, as soon as it, the bhavanga, arises, the hindrances, the obscurations, are quite suppressed, the defilements subside, and the mind becomes concentrated in access concentration. So when do you achieve access concentration, access to the first jhana? He just said it. When the bhavanga arises, the five obscurations are subdued, mental afflictions are subdued, and the mind is concentrated 
you've with with the with the the dissolution of your coarse mind, javana, the activities of the mind, the dissolution of javana into bhavanga, that's when you achieve access. That's what he says. You see, it's a direct quote. I didn't, that was not an interpretation. Now, in the very next section, next paragraph. Now, concentration is of two kinds. That is to say, access concentration and absorption concentration. This is the access to the first jhana, for example, and the full achievement of the first jhana. Very clear, okay? Those two. The mind becomes concentrated in two ways. The mind becomes concentrated in two ways, on the plane of access and on the plane of obtainment. So the mind is concentrated in access to the first jhana and it's concentrated, of course, in the full achievement of the first jhana. What's the difference? Herein, the mind becomes concentrated on the plane of access by abandonment of the hindrances. That's a defining characteristic that when your mind dissolves into the bhavanga, the five, five obscurations are all dormant. right? And on the plane of obtainment, when you fully achieve the first jhana, the, then your mind is characterized by the manifestation of the jhana factors. The jhana factors now are robust, they're strong, they're durable and sustainable, the five jhana factors. You have them in access, but they're not as robust as when you fully achieve the first jhana. Classic, uniform, those are the teachings. There's not a debatable point. That's the difference between access and full. Both are free of the five obscurations, but the five jhana factors are more robust, durable, sturdy, when you fully achieve them. Okay? We continue. The difference between the two kinds of concentration is this. The factors, the jhana factors, are not strong in access. It is because they are not strong that when access has arisen, the mind now makes the sign its object and now re-enters the bhavanga, or he translates as life continuum. Just so you know, life continuum is bhavanga. So it is not strong. It is because they are not strong, the five jhana factors, that when the access has arisen, the, the mind now takes the sign as its, the, the, makes the sign its object. This is the counterpart sign. This is the archetypal sign that emerges from the forearm realm. Remember? So when you achieve shamatha by way of mindfulness of breathing, you have preliminary sign, tactile sensations, acquired sign, and mental image that arises spontaneously. And then that breaks apart, and the counterpart sign, which is a hundred or a thousand times more subtle than the acquired sign, that emerges from the form realm. When that arises, that's when, you, that's when you've just crossed the threshold. But when you first access this extremely subtle archetypal sign, and it's the sign of the air element, by the way, if you access it by way of mindfulness of breathing, when that archetypal sign, that counterpart sign arises, it is so subtle that you, you contact it and then you fall back and your mind falls back into the bhavanga. It's not engaged with the sign. So what do you do if you want to fully achieve jhana, the first jhana, which is strongly emphasized in the Theravada, the actual Theravada, not the, the watered-down version we have nowadays, the mind takes the counterpart sign as its object and now re-enters, but it now re-enters the life continuum. And that is, you take it as an object and then you lose it. Like almost, you fall back, but you fall back in bhavanga. But that's not falling back into, into stupor. You've achieved shamatha, for heaven's sakes. It's just that you've lost that, ex- that connection, that engagement with this extremely subtle archetypal sign of air element. So the mind re-enters the life continuum just as a young child is lifted up and stood on its feet, it re- repeatedly falls down on the ground. Okay? It's a cute image. A little toddler gets up on his wobbly little legs and falls back on his bum. When you're, after achieving access to the first jhana, 
you want to fully achieve shana, you have to achieve shamatha all over again, this time on this incredibly subtle object. And that's very subtle, that's very challenging. And when you first start doing it, you get it and then, oh, and you fall back on your bum. You fall back in bhavanga. Okay? So, that's not bad, but he wants you to achieve full jhana. He wants you to achieve second, third, and fourth. This is Theravada. There's nothing else to do. <laughs> I mean, there's vipassana. That's cool. But that's kind of it. You know, jhana and vipassana. They don't have stage regeneration, all the cool deities and bells and, you know, bells and whistles that we have. So, you know, why not achieve jhana? You know? I want to have a contemplative observatory where we can lure some uh, Theravadans in <laughs> and have them do this. Because, you know, all the people following Dzogchen will have no time. <laughs> We're too busy. Shamadeva Vipassana, Texture Turkey, you know. Somebody's got to do it. Hey, hey, Theravada, we have a nice place where we give you a room for free. Come on. <laughs> we want to watch. Tell us how it works out. Okay. Do you mind if we want a little bit more? I mean, I'm just loving this. And this is fruit of 20 years of research. And it's going to get better. Take my word for it. Believe me. Okay. But the factors are strong in absorption. When you fully achieve the first jhana, they're strong, they're robust. You're not, you don't fall back on your bum anymore. It is because they are strong that when absorption concentration has arisen, full achievement of the first jhana, for example, the mind, having one, once interrupted the flow of the bhavanga, carries on with a stream of profitable, that's virtuous, impulsion for a whole night and for a whole day, just as a healthy man, after rising from his seat, could stand for a whole day. He just stated, what's it like? What's the gold standard of fully achieving the first jhana? You can meditate for 24 hours straight. Flawless. A lot of people. Drives me, it doesn't drive me crazy, but it's disappointing that it's so much in the air, in the popular literature and the Vipassana movement, primarily, especially. Modern Vipassana You know, achieving the first jhana in a month, achieving a weekend, got it, oh, lost it, where'd I put it, where'd I put it? You know, it's just like, they're, you know, they're ignoring the greatest commentator in the whole tradition by saying, oh, but that was Buddha Gosa's view, but we're, reading, what, but we're reading the Pali Canon. And then, of course, they give you something easier. And like one person who wrote to me, his teacher, who's a very, very renowned teacher, considered to be an authority on jhanas, told a student who wrote to me, I, he, he wrote to me, I've achieved the first jhana. Well, he was told by his teacher he has. And I'm overcome by lust. Well, that just makes no sense at all. That's kind of like, you're kidding, right? I mean, you don't even know the first thing about the first jhana? I mean, literally, you don't know the first thing that you're free of the five obscurations? I didn't need to be an Albert Einstein to find that passage. It's in English. If you've achieved access to the first jhana, let alone the first jhana, you're free of the five obscurations. The first one of those is craving for the allures of the desire realm, like sex. There's no craving for it. And this person still felt he'd achieved the first jhana and then wondered, oh, I've got so much lust coming out, what shall I do? I say this with absolutely no sarcasm or condescension. It's just that he was misled. But when our own Buddhist teachers mislead us, then what on the hell are we supposed to do then? Because they're the people we rely upon. So this is where my passion comes from. If you can't rely on Buddhist teachers to learn about Buddhism, where else are you going to go? We're failing if we mislead people and keep on pulling Dharma down to our size. Rather than saying, hey, this is a very high mountain, let's get, let's get cracking and see if we can climb the actual mountain, the gold standard, 
and not keeping it down to bring it down to fool's gold. And it's happening all over the place. Really, it's happening a lot. It happens not just in Theravada Buddhism. It happens in Tibetan Buddhism. It happens in Chan and Zen. It happens in Christianity and Hinduism. We're living in a really degenerate era. That's what it really is. But we don't have to be degenerate. And we can find out what the authentic teachings are. So one, one more passage from the Anguttara Nikaya. Thus, this radiant chitta exists whether or not it is obscured with defilements or free of them. This is not a direct quote. But Buddha Gosa refers to this radiant mind. Buddha Gosa refers to this radiant mind that the Buddha himself referred to as naturally pure. And he gives the source of this in the Anguttara Nikaya. The early suttas discuss dying and going to sleep as parallel states. So make it really, really clear. We're talking about the same thing here. When you die and when you fall deep asleep, you're going to the bhavanga. With dreamless sleep as a state of uninterrupted bhavanga. Okay? This, this, this totally rings a bell, right? They've got to be referring to the same thing as a substrate consciousness. Because every single marker is the same. Now we have another text I've cited before. I love it. The Melinda Panya. That is this conversation with Nagasena and King Melinda. In this, and, it's, and I show exactly pagination, here Nagasena compares it the bhavanga, to the radiance of the sun, for it is naturally pure and radiant. It is the resting ground state of consciousness, which is not turned towards the senses. You do not see the senses. You're deep asleep. You're dead. You've achieved shamatha. So your five physical senses are not open and clear. You are not picking up any appearances at all. Access to the first jhana. He writes with enormous authority here. This is an arhat speaking which is not turns to source, and it acts as the foundation for the process of non-karmically active life, of which it is the characteristic factor. The state it returns to when not doing anything else, when the mind is not involved in javana, in activities, it returns to its base, its ground of becoming, its substrate consciousness. The equation of the bhavanga with the radiant chitta, that the Buddha referred to, this chitta, this chitta, the equation of the bhavanga with the radiant chitta is directly asserted in the commentaries, as well as in the Melinda Panya, which cites similes indicating that while the normal functioning of chitta is like light, which may be, which may be cut off, which may get cut off, the bhavanga chitta of dreamless sleep has a radiance which exists whether or not it is obscured. So the nature of the substrate consciousness of bhavanga, it's the nature of light. It doesn't go out, it just gets obscured. Whereas our, the clarity in the waking, ordinary waking state, well, it gets very dull. As if you slip into stupor in the fourth, in the fourth state prior to achieving shamatha. The Katuvatu calls it the chitta of the very last moment of a person's life. You have no sensory experience in the very last moment of your life. That should be patently obvious. So the notion of your senses being clear and picking up, or that appearances are coming to you, is not true. It's just not true at all. Okay? So I'm, unless all, including, these, including the Buddha and these great commentaries, the Arhat, Katavatu, unless they're all wrong, then Karmachamet, when he's saying your senses are clear, he's not referring to access, he's referring to the eighth stage. Asanga, if we need another authority. Asanga writes, with the achievement of shamatha, and I quote, due to the absence of mindfulness and mentation, these are factors of the coarse mind, when the meditative object is dissolved and released, the mind rests in the absence of appearances. That's unequivocal. His brother Vasubandhu, who writes with equal authority, he says, with the achievement of shamatha, technically known as threshold of the first jhana, the five senses are the five physical senses are dormant. I give the source. Total agreement between Theravada and, and Indian Mahayana. 
Tsongkhapa, in his great, great Lamrim, the great exposition of stages of the path. Therefore, the shamatha that serves as the basis for Vipassana, by, one, by which one achieves the Arya paths of all stream returners and once returners, is threshold of the first jhana. So that's what you need. That's the minimum amount of shamatha, threshold of the first jhana. In order to become a stream enterer and so forth, you've got to have that. In addition, of course, Vipassana. Unequivocal. He says it's an immediate exposition of the path. At that time, while in meditative equipoise, no appearances of your own body and so on arise, and there is a sense as if the mind has become indivisible with space. When rising from that state, it is as if the body suddenly comes into being. Whoosh! But there were no appearances. Completely contrary to what Kamachamaramaji said which somebody is profoundly wrong if he was referring to access to the first jhana, but nobody's wrong if he's referring to what that Karmapa said. Hey, if you can't get full access, well, at least go for the eighth stage. That's really, really good samadhi. Tsongkhapa continues, all samadhis prior to the achievement of the samadhi of the threshold to the first jhana are single-pointed attention of the desire realm. So judging by the great treatises, there seem to be very few who achieve even shamatha because they're not trying. If you think it's not necessary, why try? And this is in the 14th century. The Vajra essence. Now to remain, this is now Padmasambhava, the Vajra essence. Can you stand it? It's 10 past. Because <laughs> tomorrow we have off, right? I thought it meant nice to round this off. Here's Vajra essence, the love of my life. Now to remain for a long time in the domain of the essential nature of mind, I shall, I shall be watchful, Essential nature of mind is substrate consciousness. We know that by context. This is a quotation. This is what you're telling yourself. Now, to remain for a long time in the domain of the essential nature of the mind, I shall be watchful, observing motion, keeping my body straight, and maintaining vigilant mindfulness. End of quotes. When you say this and practice it, fluctuating thoughts do not cease. However, mindful awareness exposes them, so you don't get lost in them as usual. By applying yourself to this practice continuously at all times, both during and between meditation sessions, eventually all coarse and subtle thoughts will be calmed in the empty expanse of the essential nature of your mind. Substrate, substrate consciousness. I say that definitively. You will become still in an unfluctuating state in which you experience bliss like the warmth of a fire, luminosity like the dawn, and non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves yearning for this and believing in it, you'll not be able to bear being separated from it, and you'll hold fast to it. If you get caught up in bliss, this will cast you into the desire realm. If you get caught up in luminosity, this will propel you into the form realm. If you get caught up in, which means grasp onto, prefer, identify with, non-conceptuality, this will launch you to the peak of mundane existence. That's in the formless realm. Therefore, understand that while these are indispensable signs of progress, this is a straight translation. These are indispensable signs of progress for, those, for individuals entering the path. It is a mistake to get caught up in them indefinitely. Okay? Authority of Padmasambhava. No interpretation. He just said what he meant. This is called ordinary shamatha of the path. And if you achieve stability in it for a long time, you will have achieved the critical feature of stability in your mind stream. However, Know that among unrefined people in this degenerate era, 
very few appear to achieve more than fleeting stability. That's 19th century. One might think, oh, well, that must be this is incredibly difficult. That's why nobody's doing it, because it's incredible. I don't think so. If you're not doing it, don't achieve it. If you're just doing three retreats, and at most maybe do a month, who's going to achieve shamatha in a month? Yeah, if you're a Mozart of shamatha, sure, but if otherwise, forget about it. And if you don't even do a month, so you're doing three years, you don't have any shamatha. This means you're doing three years with maybe stage two or three samadhi. And you may do two three-year retreats and three-year retreats, but if your level of samadhi is still stage two or three or something like that, or four or five, you're not even close to shamatha. Where's path? Where's any sign of any possibility? Do ten three-year retreats. If you're not practicing and achieving shamatha, and you're not practicing vipassana, you're just doing a whole heck of a lot of stage of generation practice. How does it ever turn into a path? Do it for a hundred lifetimes, how does it turn into a path? Or are you just doing discursive meditations in Lamrim, never getting around to Shamadeva Vipassana? Reciting zillions of mantras. Very good and very virtuous. But where is Shamadeva Vipassana? Theravada tradition, Vipassana Vipassana, where is Shamata? Zen, where is Shamata? You know? So, it's rare. I mean, Tsongaba said it in the 14th century. Dujum Lingba Padmasambhava says it in the 19th century. I think that's just because everybody's busy. <laughs> they're either too busy with samsara or they're too busy leaping to more advanced practices that, you know, six yogas of Naropa, state regeneration, completion, Dumo, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and so forth. And they just forget the basics. And you see, now I just, I'm citing it because I don't want anybody to think, oh, that, well, in Alan's view, who cares what Alan's view is? I don't care what Alan's view is. Really, why would anybody care what my view is? I'm Mr. Nobody. I'm not even a Geshe or a Tuku or a Kempo or nothing. I'm not even a professor. <laughs> Nothing. But Dujam Lingba, Padmasambhava, Asanga, Chantideva, Vasubandhu, Buddha Gosa, Buddha, they are somebody, I think, if one ignores them, okay, you can, but then maybe you're missing something. O Vajra of mind, the rope of mindfulness and firmly maintained attention is dissolved by the power of meditative experience until finally the ordinary mind of an ordinary being disappears, as it were. Consequently, compulsive thinking subsides, and roving thoughts vanish into the space of awareness. You then slip into the vacuity of the substrate in which self, others, and objects disappear. By clinging to the experiences of vacuity and luminosity while looking inward, the appearance of self, others, and objects vanish. This is the substrate consciousness. Some teachers say that the substrate to which one descends to which you descend, is freedom from conceptual elaboration. That's the, that's the second of the four yogas. Complete bonkers. Or one taste. The thing is the third one. you know. But others say it is ethically neutral. Whatever they call it, in truth you have come to the essential nature of the mind. You come to the ground state, the relative ground state of the mind. Not emptiness, not chunyata, but you've come to that. And so that's the result of my investigations over 20 years. But then does this mean that the, the whole Kagyu tradition, because what, what Kamachamit said was very representative. It was not iconoclastic. Does this mean that the Kagyu tradition since the 17th century or earlier has been missing the boat, none of them achieving the path, oh, wow, too bad, but at least the Galupas have their act together. And the Nyingbapas, the Dzogchen, if they're really following Dujum Lingba. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And I think this is what's happening. This is my interpretation. If you have achieved the eighth out of nine stages on the path of shamatha, you are really somewhere. 
you're way, way up on the path. You have superb samadhi. And you can remain in it for hours on end. And you remain in it effortlessly. And you have no laxity or excitation even on the subtle level. And so here's my interpretation. Because I have great respect for the God. This is the tradition of Milarepa and so forth, the great beings, uh, right on through you know, recent history. And here's my interpretation. That, is, that Kamap himself said, if you can achieve access to the first jhana, that's best. But if you can't, or you just decide, okay, maybe I won't go there as straight shamatha, he said, well, achieve the eighth stage, single-pointed attention. That's the name of the eighth stage. And then what? Start practicing Vipassana. Take this mighty samadhi you've developed, which is incredibly good. It's not shamatha, it's not full-fledged shamatha, but it's really good samadhi. And use it, instead of just focusing on awareness or just focusing on space of the mind, use it now. June do sum, probe into the origins, location, and destination of your mind. Go right into Vipassana, bring this mighty, mighty mind of samadhi with you, and then achieve shamatha, focus on emptiness. Sooner or later you've got to achieve shamatha. You can't just skip it. And it's with that fusion of shamatha and vipassana that you achieve the first yoga. That's universally stated. The fusion of shamatha and vipassana, vipassana and emptiness, that's when you really achieve the first of the four yogas. Right? So in other words, they're fine. This is just a strategic maneuver, a slight maneuver. Don't just stay in shamatha when you're on stage eight. It's like, you know, when I was in, in, in high school, I was one of the brighter kids, and we had the, ch- the choice, if we wanted to, to skip the senior of high school and go right to university. So a number of us had that choice. Tupton Chudun. And you know Tupton Chudun? We're high school buddies. She took that option. So she went off to USC. She skipped senior year. I kind of liked being in high school, so I stayed. <laughs> uh, but she skipped it. Well, that doesn't mean that she, oh, she's a high school dropout. <laughs> no, she went to college a year early. Right? These are the bright kids, you know, advanced placement kids. You know. Not geniuses, but, you know, bright. And so that's what they've done. They just skipped, you know, the senior, le- the senior year of shamatha, go right into Vipassana, and then they achieve shamatha in Vipassana. She, she picked up, up her senior year in college, in university. You know, it's just, it's just a, a slight variation of technique. It's not like they blew it. If they never get around to achieving shamatha at all, if they never get around to Vipassana, if they never get around to achieving the eighth stage out of nine, they're just piddling around in stage two, three, four, something like that, then there's no path. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter. Because Shamatha Vipassana is the core of all of Buddhist meditation. To draw an analogy, and then we'll find out as you go. Genlam Rimba, with whom I lived for a year in the same cabin when we were in, in uh, the state of Washington for the one-year Shamatha retreat, he commented, now here's a yogi's yogi. This is Milarepa-style yogi. And his guru, Tehor Kyopanramache, Unbelievable. Real Milarepa. They just lived up in caves. And Gen Shama Wondu, uh, he was another of my teachers. He's like 35 years in retreat. Lama Zupanambuja has enormous regard for him. Said he had achieved Shamata. Gen Shama Wondu is one of my gurus. The, uh, Gen Shama Wondu went up to Teokyopanambuja, up in the mountains there. And, and Gen Lamrimba didn't, but he then met with these, you know, studied or trained under these great yogis in India. And so he really know the yogic tradition within the Galupa tradition. He was 100% Galupa. Although later his holiness encouraged him to study Dzogchen, which he did. And he liked it. But my point is very simple. He said, within this Galupa tradition, for those of us really dedicated to the yogic path, the contemplative path, here's something we commonly do. 
because we invited him to America to lead a shamatha retreat, and his holiness said, yes, please go. That's why it happened. He said, here's what Gyanlam Rinpoche said. For us, you know, in the 20th century, practicing within the Galupa tradition and really devoted to contemplative life, and he did for like 30 years, full-time, meditating from, towards the end of his life, he was meditating from 5 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. That's a yogi's yogi. So I'm embarrassed to even refer to myself as a meditator or a yogi when I know that's the professional level. Four hours in between, but otherwise it's five till one, not one till five, five till one. <laughs> that kind of yogi. So when I hear, you know, scientific studies in the media, oh, well, we, did, we studied some advanced meditators. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, sure. Oh, you've done a three-month three retreat. Oh, you've done a three-year retreat. Wow. Sorry if I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed with me. I'm just, wow. <laughs> what a disappointment. Bien Lamrimba said this. Cut to the chase, we all break for the weekend. In our tradition, he said, it's common for us, for us Galupa yogis, within shamatha, straight shamatha, achieve just stage five. Go to stage five. Just straight shamatha. Whether it's focus in Buddha image, focus on mind. We'll go up to stage five. At that point, you're free, of, you're free of coarse excitation. You're free of coarse laxity. You've crossed the threshold. You're not stu- stupering out. You know. Stage five is pretty darn good samadhi. Free of coarse laxity, free of coarse excitation. This is good. And then we'll go to stage of generation. And if we really proceed along the path, we'll achieve shamatha within the stage of generation. Or if you want to follow Mahamudra, we'll achieve shamatha within Mahamudra. You want to go to Vipassana, we'll achieve shamatha in Vipassana. But just flat, simple shamatha, we just go to stage five, and then we apply that to fully achieving shamatha, if we go that far, within stage regeneration, within vipassana, within, you know, Mahamudra and Dzogchen. So it's technique. But none of them say, oh, you can just skip shamatha. Like, who needs that? Okay? Have I made my case? <laughs> okay. It's all intended only to try to be helpful. I get no joy whatsoever about criticizing anybody. I can believe it or not, but I really get no joy out of it. I find it very tiresome and very sad when I see people muddying the water, peeing into the city well. I don't like to criticize that. But if it's happening, you know, if you don't call any attention to it, like, oh, let's just all be nice with each other. Well, let's be nice, but let's not, you know, as they say in the Midwest, don't let your, your mind be so open your brain falls out. <laughs> Oh, Lasso, so enjoy your weekend. Practice all the time. And I'll see you on Sunday morning. <laughs>